All right. Good morning, everyone. And let's just uh, begin in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to gather together uh, under your word and uh, to be taught and instructed by you and by your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would be with us and you'd teach us and build us up in your words so that uh, we would be conformed to the likeness of your son and uh, we would give thanks and praise and all glory to you. And we pray these things in the name of your son. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, this morning, uh, we're back in Ephesians and Lord willing, we'll finish up our introduction uh, to Paul's letter. And if you remember, we had two introductions a little while ago. Uh, in the first introduction, we looked at the authorship and provenance of the letter. Uh, provenance just meaning uh, where it originated from, uh, where Paul was writing from. And uh, the author, of course, was Paul, uh, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's, he's an envoy of God's anointed king. Uh, and he is made an envoy by the very will of God. So he's God's authoritative spokesman. And we discussed uh, three different views of the, the provenance of the letter. It was while Paul was in prison. However, uh, some speculate that there was an Ephesian imprisonment, uh, and that one is extremely unlikely. Uh, others uh, believe it might be a Caesarean imprisonment from which he wrote his letter. Uh, and that one's more likely than the Ephesian one, uh, but there are still some problems. And we argued that uh, it was... Uh, Paul's first uh, Roman imprisonment uh, from which he probably wrote uh, to the, the saints in Ephesus. Uh, and then in our second introduction, uh, we began to address the recipients and destination uh, of the, the letter uh, to, to which Paul was writing. Uh, and those two issues are tied very closely together because uh, the place to which Paul is writing uh, those are his, his recipients. And we talked about uh, an important textual variant uh, where there are a handful of manuscripts uh, and some important ones missing the words uh, in Ephesus. But we argued that uh, in Ephesus is the only, uh, the only destination found in the manuscript tradition and that Paul was uh, indeed writing uh, to the saints in Ephesus. And then today we'll finish looking at the destination of the letter uh, and briefly uh, tie that into the purpose for which uh, Paul was writing. And we'll kind of summarize that at the, uh, the end of our discussion. Uh, and this morning uh, we'll save questions and comments until the end because I'd really like to, if, if God wills, to finish our introduction this morning. Uh, so then uh, in the coming weeks and months we, we can get right into the, the heart of Paul's uh, Paul's letter. Uh, and so, beginning by looking at the, the background of Ephesus, uh, the destination, uh, we've determined that this is likely where Paul indeed wrote his letter. Uh, now I want to look at the, just the background of the city, uh, looking first at the significance of Ephesus in the New Testament, uh, and then the general character of Ephesus, uh, looking at things like its population, its location, uh, its political economic importance in the Roman Empire. Uh, and then finally, uh, we'll look at its 
a religious character, which will be very important uh, for Paul's uh, epistle. So let's begin with the significance of Ephesus uh, in the New Testament, uh, in the first century apostolic era. Uh, and first off, just, just a fact, uh, Ephesus, uh, outside of the Gospels, uh, is referred to 20 times in uh, the New Testament, uh, which is uh, very substantial for, for uh, any, uh, any city outside of a place like Jerusalem and Rome. Uh, 16 times it's referred to as Ephesus, uh, uh, twice as a city, and other times as, uh, as pronouns. Uh, and it, it appears in the book of Acts, in 1 Corinthians, uh, in uh, Ephesians, of course, First uh, and Second Timothy. Uh, and so it's, it's just a rather prominent city uh, from, from those facts alone, if that's all you knew. And then uh, the Apostle Paul had a very extensive ministry in uh, Ephesus. Let me change to a map of his second missionary journey. Uh, toward the end of Paul's second missionary journey, uh, he was, stayed in uh, Corinth for a year and a half, ministering. Uh, and there he met Priscilla and Aquila, who were evicted uh, from Rome under the edict of Claudius when the Jews were, uh, were sent out from Rome. And uh, the Christians really along with them because they were closely associated with the Jewish people at that time. Uh, and from Corinth, at the end of his stay, uh, his second missionary journey was between around 49 and 51 A.D., uh, he went to travel back to Jerusalem, but they stopped in the city of Ephesus. Uh, and that was Paul's first visit there. Uh, and they went and uh, met the Jewish people in the synagogue. Uh, and they wanted Paul to stay with them. But Paul had plans to travel first back to Jerusalem. And then if God willed, uh, he would return to them. Uh, and so Priscilla and Aquila started, stayed there uh, and began min ministering and met Apollos and uh, sent him along on his way to Corinth. Uh, and Paul, shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, began his third missionary journey uh, and traveled to uh, Ephesus. Uh, he was probably there uh, for, for three years, uh, likely between the years 52 to 55 <laughs> Uh, AD, which is his single longest stay in any one place uh, during his missionary journeys. Uh, and so uh, he really planted the gospel uh, in Ephesus and in this region. Uh, and it was said, uh, Luke said, that uh, the gospel went out from Ephesus to all of the province of Asia. Uh, Ephesus was the capital of the province of Asia, uh, and Asia was uh, a province west of Galatia in western uh, Turkey uh, along the, the coast of the Aegean Sea. Uh, and so the, the gospel went out to, to all of Asia. Uh, and even if we look at Paul's letters, uh, Ephesus is significant. Uh, it's the place from which he wrote uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, also, it was the destination, of course, uh, for uh, Ephesians, as we argued, uh, and also for First and likely Second Timothy, 
uh, Timothy ministered in Ephesus uh, along with Paul, but even after Paul, uh, after Paul was in prison in, in Rome, uh, he was really uh, an elder and a teacher uh, in uh, the Ephesian uh, church, uh, establishing it and uh, helping it to, to grow. Uh, and then uh, when Tychicus delivered Ephesians to Ephesus, uh, he was almost certainly carrying uh, Colossians and uh, Philemon uh, all the way to Colossae, east of Ephesus. Uh, and so Ephesus was even the hub. It was the, the port city uh, through which Tychicus traveled to deliver uh, Paul's uh, other letters. Uh, and then the Apostle John also had uh, apparently an extensive ministry in Ephesus. Uh, Eric has spoken about, according to church tradition, uh, John in his latter years uh, lived in Ephesus in the region of Asia. Uh, when he wrote uh, Revelation, he was exiled off of the island of Patmos, uh, which is just southwest of, of Ephesus uh, in the Ephesian harbor. Uh, and so... It was really, uh, Ephesus was really a hub for Christian activity, a missionary activity between uh, Rome and Greece and Macedonia and Asia. Uh, is very active. Uh, and even uh, other letters like uh, 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude, uh, 1st John are associated with this region and province of, of Asia uh, and were likely known to, uh, to the Ephesian church. Uh, and so it was the, the seedbed uh, of the gospel uh, in uh, the, the very heart of Asia. And so uh, Ephesus is worth studying, not just for the letter to the Ephesians, but it, it's worth studying for its significance to uh, the New Testament and really outside of the gospels and the growth of the, the church. And it would continue uh, to be a very uh, an important city and an important region uh, throughout the early centuries of Christianity. Uh, and so now, seeing just how significant this city is to the New Testament, I'd like to focus on the, the general character uh, of Ephesus itself, uh, looking at things like its location, uh, the population that dwelt there, its uh, political economic significance in the, the Roman Empire. And now, there, there's a lot of history we could cover, but mo most of it's irrelevant to, to our study. Uh, like any, uh, uh, any city and location uh, around the, the Mediterranean uh, and throughout uh, Asia Minor and uh, Mesopotamia and the surrounding regions around Israel, uh, there were empires that rose and, fall and fell and uh, took territory and then were uh, moved out of it. Uh, and so there's a, there's a lot we could cover, but most of it uh, isn't particularly relevant. Uh, first relevant point is that uh, there was a, a native people uh, probably around the second millennium, or native as far as we knew. Uh, there, there could have been native people before them as well. Uh, in Greek, uh, Ionians uh, settled in Ephesus and in the surrounding region. Uh, and the Greek Ionians were a people that lived in eastern Greece, uh, and along the, uh, the islands east of Greece, uh, or also uh, Achaia, uh, as I believe it shows on our map. Uh, and that's important because 
Uh, there was a mother fertility goddess, uh, often associated uh, with different names, but sometimes uh, Sybil uh, in those regions. Uh, and the Greek Ionians, when they came over, uh, they basically uh, tagged her with the, the label and associated her with uh, the Greek Artemis or Latin Diana. Uh, And so there was a a syncretism, a a blending of their Greek goddess with this uh, mother fertility goddess uh, of the the native people, uh, which uh, we'll we'll be discussing that more when we get to the uh, the religious character. But this Artemis wasn't just a huntress or a virgin goddess, uh, but took on some of these uh, mother fertility goddess uh, characteristics. And so Artemis of the Ephesians was uh, somewhat unique uh, in ancient times. Uh, And then there were uh, various kings. Uh, There were uh, Lydian rulers. Uh, Eric mentioned one of them, Croesus. And uh, the Persians came around 546, uh, the great Persian empire, and uh, took the territory. And uh, then there was a tussle back and forth between Greece and Persia for, for centuries until Alexander the Great came in 334 B.C. And as uh, many scholars say, he was seen really as uh, sort of a liberator coming into uh, many of these territories and uh, taking out the, the Persians uh, who dominated these territories for, uh, for so long and fought over them. Uh, and that's important because uh, with Alexander the Great, a Greek Hellenistic culture spread uh, throughout Ephesus, throughout these uh, these regions throughout the Mediterranean uh, and uh, had, a, had a great impact uh, on the Roman Empire and uh, really on culture for centuries and millennia uh, following uh, carrying Greek culture uh, throughout. Uh, and then uh, there were some uh, rulers from Pergamum in the 2nd century B.C. Uh, in the last one, Atalos III uh, basically left uh, Ephesus and this region uh, in his will to uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, and so in 133 BC, uh, the Roman Empire uh, reigned supreme over Ephesus uh, and it became the capital uh, of Rome's province of uh, Asia. Uh, and so it was an extremely uh, prominent city uh, within the Roman Empire. Uh, And it was also not just the capital of the Roman province of Asia, but it was a prominent, and not just a prominent, but the prominent port city and harbor uh, of this uh, surrounding uh, region, uh, which made it uh, very important uh, politically uh, and economically. Uh, And it it was a port off of the the Caister River, uh, at the mouth of the river as it entered into Uh, the Aegean Sea. Uh, And let me just read a quote by uh, Clinton Arnold uh, talking about the the importance of this great capital in port city in the Roman Empire. Uh, Clinton Arnold, in his commentary on Ephesians, uh, states, uh, the city of Ephesus was aptly called the mother city of Asia because of her influence over the politics, commerce, and religious atmosphere of the province. Ephesus was the headquarters of the Roman proconsul and the seat of the confederacy uh, of the Greeks in Asia. Uh, And when he says proconsul, uh, those are really the uh, the governors 
uh, over the, the region uh, of uh, Asia, over all of Asia and the capital of Ephesus. Uh, and Arnold goes on, in the New Testament era, Ephesus was the major port city for the west coast of Asia. Roads from the north, south, and east converged in Ephesus, which facilitated the trade and shipping that went through this city. The first century writer Strabo noted that, this, quote, the city, because of its advantageous situation in other respects uh, than the harbor, uh, grows daily and is the largest market emporium in Asia on this side of the Taurus. Uh, and so uh, it was the most uh, substantial uh, economy and port city and capital uh, of this surrounding region and one of the most important cities uh, really in the Roman Empire. Now, as for the population, uh, it's really somewhat speculative. Uh, many scholars have said that there were uh, around 200 to 250,000 people uh, living in Ephesus. Uh, but some others have challenged and said that the, uh, the evidence really isn't quite as hard as we would like. Uh, but Clinton Arnold says that uh, it was very obvious that the population was large and growing uh, throughout the, the first century A.D., uh, throughout the second century A.D., which was really uh, Ephesus's most prominent time. Uh, but over time, eventually, because of uh, silting and sediment that was carried in from the Aegean Sea uh, to the, the harbor, uh, eventually the harbor was, uh, Ephesus was totally cut off from the sea, uh, which led to a long, long uh, centuries and centuries uh, decline, and it, it lost its prominence and, and greatness. But uh, Arnold says that uh, 200, 250,000 is probably unrealistic if, if we're saying it was within the city walls itself, uh, because then the population would be as dense uh, as in Rome, uh, which is uh, quite unlikely. But uh, if we take into account uh, the those who lived within the city walls uh, and those who lived uh, around the city walls outside, uh, then 200, 250,000 is, uh, it's very, very plausible. Uh, and so as a populous uh, city, uh, if you imagine Paul there, uh, it was uh, very bustling and busy and there were uh, people all over. Uh, it was uh, economically uh, v very important. So there is trade uh, flowing in and out, exports and, and imports, uh, and people active all throughout the city. Uh, there's a marketplace, residential areas, uh, forums for, for the government and where people could uh, meet and uh, have, have dialogues and public meetings. And uh, Paul uh, spent uh, two years in the, the Hall of Tyrannus uh, uh, dialoguing and uh, proclaiming the, the gospel uh, with people and uh, teaching. Uh, and then uh, there was also a, a great theater uh, in Ephesus. Uh, and the theater uh, still stands uh, in Ephesus today, uh, or at least very, very much of it is uh, uh, somewhat intact. Uh, and it was estimated to sit uh, anywhere between 24 uh, to 25,000 uh, people uh, within this uh, great theater, which was just east of the harbor, uh, built directly into a, a mountain, uh, Mount uh, Peon. 
Uh, and this is the place where uh, Demetrius the silversmith and the craftsman uh, probably dragged uh, Paul's companions, uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, uh, when they formed a, a mob and a riot uh, because uh, Paul's proclamation of, of the gospel uh, for over two years uh, created uh, such such disturbance within the city. There were so many people being converted. Uh, Paul was convincing people that uh, that the gods uh, made of man's hands and uh, these shrines were just, just idols made by men and not truly gods. Uh, and it was actually having an impact uh, on uh, the economic prosperity of the, the silversmiths, creating uh, little miniature shrines of Artemis's temple uh, so that people could, could worship the, the image of Artemis. Uh, and so a very, very large city with uh, many, uh, many structures uh, within it. Uh, and then uh, the Temple of Artemis was uh, considered by many to be one of the seven wonders of the world. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, once we get to the, the religious character of the city. I'd just like to quote uh, Clinton Arnold again on uh, Ephesus's uh, population and economic prosperity. Uh, he says, uh, it would be accurate to characterize Ephesus as the leading city of the richest region of the Roman Empire. At this time, only Rome and Alexandria were larger, uh, although some say, you know, it might have been in competition with Antioch, but uh, just population-wise, it was the, probably a third or fourth largest. Uh, and it, as for prominence, uh, Clinton Arnold says it, it was the, the third most prominent city uh, in uh, the Roman Empire and the, the richest of the richest region. Uh, and he goes on, uh, because of the thriving economy, which represented opportunity for rural peoples and folks from poorer cities, Ephesus was a substantial draw to peoples from various parts of Anatolia and the empire in general. Uh, and Anatolia, uh, you can just think of the, the Turkish peninsula. Uh, as one writer notes, quote, in Greek Romantic novels of the 2nd century CE or AD, uh, Ephesus appears not as a land of sojourn, but as the desired destination, bustling and glamorous. Uh, and Clinton Arnold goes on, uh, the city was cosmopolitan and multi-ethnic, uh, meaning it was a worldly city, a city of worldly influence uh, that reached out into the entire uh, Roman Empire. Uh, and he continues, uh, in addition to the Anatolian peoples of the old ethnic territories of Ionia, Lydia, Phrygia, Caria, and Mysia, uh, there were settlers who came from Greece, Egypt, and now many from Rome. Josephus attests to a substantial Jewish population in the city that had made Ephesus home since the time of the Seleucids, 3rd century B.C., uh, and the Seleucids were uh, a people that uh, came from one of Alexander the Great's generals uh, who dominated the, the territory of uh, Babylonia and Mesopotamia uh, and then uh, even into uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, uh, and eventually down into to Israel as well. Uh, and then he says, uh, no doubt, because of the opportunities presented by the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, more Jews were coming to this city uh, from various parts, including the land of Israel. Inscriptional evidence points to the fact 
that many people in the upper classes uh, and involved in civic life were of foreign origin. Uh, and now I'd like to just lastly look at the general character, touch on uh, this substantial but minority uh, Jewish population, which will be significant for our uh, study of the, uh, the Ephesians. Uh, now, as uh, Clinton Arnold said, uh, we know that there is a Jewish population in this region uh, because uh, even Josephus uh, attests to a, a Jewish population, a substantial one, uh, going back at least to the 3rd century uh, BC uh, under uh, some of those uh, generals and uh, dynasties that followed uh, the death of Alexander uh, the Great. Uh, and many of these uh, Jews were actually treated as uh, citizens. They were given uh, civic rights. Uh, they were also uh, given the freedom to practice their Jewish religion and uh, many of their customs and laws as well. Uh, but although they had these rights, there was often tension between uh, the Jewish people uh, and uh, the, the local peoples of the, the region. Uh, and then we don't know this just from Josephus, uh, but we know it uh, from Scripture. Uh, if we look at Paul uh, entering the city in Acts uh, 19, uh, and we'll be flipping there in a, a little bit, uh, the first people that Paul encounters, uh, if you can remember, uh, when Paulo, Apollos was in Corinth and Paul came into the city, uh, he encountered disciples of John uh, the Baptist. Uh, and let, let's just read uh, Acts 19, uh, beginning in uh, verse 1. Uh, I'll begin reading, and you can uh, flip there. Uh, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, at this point in Acts, you'd expect that these were Christian disciples, uh, but we'll see that the, the plot thickens, uh, according to Luke. Uh, and he said to them, uh, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, and they said, no, uh, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, uh, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, uh, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men uh, in all. And Luke is concerned to show the, the progress of the gospel uh, throughout the book of Acts. Uh, and so beginning with Pentecost, uh, the, the gospel and the, the Holy Spirit was poured out uh, onto the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Uh, and then it went out to the, the Samaritans uh, and then to Jewish proselytes or, or converts to the Jewish religion. Uh, and God-fearing Gentiles, uh, those who uh, didn't make the full conversion, uh, receiving circumcision. Uh, and then out to pagan Gentiles, and now even to uh, disciples of John the Baptist, who were almost certainly uh, Jewish because uh, John the Baptist's ministry uh, was in the heart of Israel and appealed to, to Jewish believers, uh, preparing them uh, for the, the one who was to come. 
Uh, and here uh, we see uh, that there were uh, 12 uh, Jewish disciples. So we, we know that there was at least a, a modest Jewish population as, as Paul was entering into the city. But uh, there weren't just 12. Uh, there were more than that, uh, according to Josephus. And according to Luke, uh, if we keep reading into the next verse, verse 8, uh, where Paul spent three months in the synagogue. Uh, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly. Uh, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Uh, this continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Uh, and so it was Paul's custom, wherever he went, uh, where there was a Jewish population, where there was a synagogue, uh, to go to the Jews first uh, and to proclaim uh, the gospel to them, uh, to proclaim the Jewish Messiah, the anointed king, uh, to them. And uh, there was a Jewish population that was established enough in Ephesus uh, that there was a synagogue there. Uh, there was a permanent, settled uh, Jewish people uh, within uh, Ephesus, uh, and also within the, the surrounding territories. Uh, and both Jews and Greeks uh, heard uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, and then uh, when Paul speaks to the Ephesian elders uh, in around 57 AD, uh, he speaks about uh, the trials that happened to him uh, through uh, the, the plots uh, of uh, the Jews and uh, many of the, the Jewish people there uh, began to oppose him uh, and oppose his ministry to the, the Gentiles uh, and had quite, quite the impact upon him. Uh, even in 1 Corinthians, you can uh, read about the, the, the great opposition uh, that, uh, that happened to Paul while he was there, although he, he had fruitful ministry. Uh, and then when uh, he traveled back uh, in 57 AD, uh, to Jerusalem for Pentecost. There were Jews from Asia, so a significant Jewish population, big enough that they knew of Paul from Asia, uh, and they returned back for the, uh, the pilgrim feast uh, all the way to, to Jerusalem, uh, hundreds and thousands of, of miles uh, back there, uh, and they stirred up a mob when they saw uh, that a companion of Paul, uh, Trophimus, an Ephesian, uh, had been in the city with Paul, and they, they assumed that Paul had uh, uh, brought them uh, into uh, the temple, uh, or at least uh, that was their, uh, their motive for, for stirring up a, a mob against, uh, against Paul. Uh, and so it's clear that there was a substantial uh, Jewish uh, population, a very diverse population uh, within this region and Gentiles from, uh, from all over the, the Roman Empire. Uh, and this will be important for our study of Paul's epistle uh, to uh, the Christians who are in Ephesus. Uh, we'll see uh, themes uh, about uh, the unity between uh, Jews and Gentiles. And uh, even if there wasn't so much difficulty within the church itself, uh, there were difficulties between uh, Jews and Gentiles uh, uh, in the, the surrounding region, uh, in 
uh, in Ephesus. And uh, really, you don't understand uh, the gospel. You don't understand the unity that we have in the body of Christ, uh, according to Paul's gospel, uh, unless you understand that it's for both Jews and Gentiles. And uh, we've all been brought together uh, into one body. Uh, We're all heirs of the promises and blessings Uh, that are found only in Christ. Uh, And we're all heirs uh, in fellow citizens uh, of the the kingdom of God. And uh, we're going to see that these are very important themes uh, within uh, Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, And they'll they'll appear time and time again. And uh, we'll touch on some of these things uh, at the the end of our our discussion. Uh, And so... Now, uh, since we've, uh, we've looked at Ephesus's uh, importance for the New Testament as a whole, uh, we've touched on its general significance as being the, the capital of the, the province of Asia, uh, one of the most economically and politically important cities within the, the Roman Empire, uh, and an empire of, uh, mixed with Jews and uh, Gentiles. Now I'd like to turn to its, uh, its religious character Uh, which will be highly significant for the letter to to Ephesians. And these things also show that, uh, indeed, Paul did have particular concerns for Christians who lived in Ephesus and the the surrounding regions. You know, the first thing to recognize uh, about Uh, the religious character of Ephesus is that, uh, like so many other cities, it was pluralistic, Uh, even very very much like our own day, Uh, but uh, perhaps more so, although uh, it's really hard to say. These letters uh, become more and more uh, relevant. Uh, We no longer live in so-called Christendom, uh, which even itself uh, took on a much uh, much paganism in many ways it wasn't very uh, very Christian at all, but uh, it was pluralistic. Uh, there was great uh, great diversity of religious belief. Uh, they believed in all sorts of uh, deities and demons and spiritual powers and astrological forces uh, per- permeating just all of the universe and influencing all of life. Uh, and Clinton Arnold uh, says that there's evidence that there were at least 50 deities uh, that were worshipped by people in Ephesus uh, of, of, of great diversity. And not everyone worshipped all of these. Uh, they worship a, a mix of them. Some would uh, emphasize some. Uh, some would emphasize uh, others. And uh, basically, the Roman Empire... Uh, Anything was acceptable and anything went so long as you uh, acknowledged certain uh, certain uh, deities that uh, the Rome acknowledged and uh, they were willing always to take on more and you, you participated in the uh, imperial cult, was, which was a mix of sort of a, a religious and political system uh, showing your political allegiance to uh, Caesar and you, you even see that. Uh, in uh, dictatorships in the world. Uh, you see that in North Korea, uh, where they basically worship the, the leader 
uh, as a god and can have no god over him. And uh, so all of these things were accepted. But uh, in Ephesus, despite all of this diversity, uh, there was one deity that stood out above all the rest, and that was Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, if you've read about the silversmiths in their riot, they chanted for hours, a great is Artemis of the Ephesians, uh, again and again and again. Uh, and uh, Artemis, uh, as I said earlier, was a, a syncretistic blend uh, of a fertility mother goddess that came from some of the native peoples uh, of Anatolia, of ancient Asia Minor, uh, and uh, the Greek goddess uh, Artemis, or in Latin, known as uh, Diana. Uh, and perhaps uh, visually, uh, what shows her prominence within the city more than any other thing is her temple, uh, the temple dedicated to Artemis. Uh, and the, the Ephesians uh, had been bestowed with a, a very prominent and lofty title by uh, the political cap capital of Rome, uh, and that was Temple Keeper of Artemis, Temple Keeper of Artemis, of the Ephesians, and she was uniquely their uh, protector uh, over the city, and as many scholars say, uh, their patron uh, god, or in this case, a goddess. Uh, and so they were the temple keepers of Artemis. Uh, in later times, they'd even become a temple keepers of uh, of Rome and of the, the Roman empires. They would have temples and shrines to uh, to at least three different emperors. And uh, they already had the imperial cult here and uh, recognized uh, the divinity of Julius Caesar and of uh, Augustus, uh, as I recall, uh, whom Julius Caesar uh, adopted as, as his son. Uh, but uh, eventually, uh, beginning under Domitian, uh, Domitian would emphasize this all the more, and they became temple keepers of uh, Domitian, and I believe Hadrian, and uh, might have been Celsus, although I'd, I'd have to check that again. Uh, but, oh, yeah? I was just wondering if anybody knows what that thing was that just fell from heaven? Oh, uh, good, good point. Uh, it was likely uh, a meteorite. Uh, they talk about the image of Artemis. They had the image of Artemis uh, within the temple. I'm, I'm glad uh, you raised that. We were going to save questions un until the end, but I'm glad you, you came in late. Uh, they, they talk about there was an image of Artemis, and they had the image of Artemis uh, in the city. Not only were they the temple keepers, uh, but they had her image that fell from heaven, which was likely uh, some sort of meteorite uh, that they worshipped as the image of Artemis because, of course, they associated the, the gods uh, with images and with the, the heavenly bodies. Uh, and the, her temple uh, was con widely considered one of the seven wonders of the world uh, for its grandeur. Uh, Clinton Arnold uh, says it was uh, four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens with columns standing 60 feet high. And so is uh, one of the largest and most magnificent structures uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, and then uh, they also had uh, uh, processions in honor of Artemis 
uh, twice a week throughout the city. So uh, from the temple, I believe, uh, west out of the temple into the, the northern gate uh, throughout the city, uh, carrying her, her statue and uh, other such things uh, throughout the city, uh, having these grand processions uh, throughout the city twice a week, uh, throughout the heart of it, uh, out the eastern gate, back out to, of the temple. And so uh, she permeated all of life. Her presence was uh, widely seen, widely known uh, in this city. Uh, in Clinton Arnold, uh, speaks about just how she permeated all of life. Uh, he says, The temple was the major banking center for the city. Her image adorned the coinage. Uh, and the coinage, by the way, her, her image on silver pieces uh, could actually be seen throughout the, the Roman Empire. Uh, Olympic-style games were held in her honor, called the Artemisia, and she was trusted as the guardian and protector of the city. For those who gave her their allegiance, Artemis was a benevolent deity. She was the daughter of Leto and Zeus, uh, and then skipping part, uh, the virgin goddess, a divine huntress and fertility deity. She was an incredibly powerful deity and would sympathetically use her power on behalf of her devotees. Thus, she was acclaimed, Queen of Heaven, Lord and Savior. And Lord and Savior are uh, their uh, in Greek, uh, feminine forms uh, in, in Greek. Uh, in those terms, uh, we see similar terms uh, used by uh, the, the Jews in, uh, in Jeremiah's day, where they said uh, they, they had... Uh, wine and food and these things, so long as they worshipped uh, the Queen of Heaven. Uh, and uh, such terms, you, you can even find similar lofty terms used by uh, some people, uh, some uh, in uh, Roman Catholicism uh, about Mary, uh, which shows that such paganism, such uh, mother goddess worship uh, extends uh, not just in ancient times, but uh, goes through, throughout life and uh, civilizations, uh, even in our own day. Uh, and we'll see these things uh, that are important in Ephesus, but uh, they, they come even closer and closer to home uh, in our own day. Uh, and then, concerning the, the relig religious character, uh, you have to recognize that they held to what you could call a magical uh, worldview. Uh, with all of these deities, spiritual forces, celestial astral powers, uh, all of these things influenced all of life, uh, absolutely everything in your day-to-day -day life. Uh, so everything from material needs, uh, things like water, food, clothing, uh, medicine, various other uh, sundry provisions and the, the harvest, uh, also things dealing with uh, health, uh, such as uh, fertility, illness, uh, death, uh, and even one's future prospects, uh, whether they have opportunities, uh, whether they uh, find a mate, marriage, uh, have, have children, uh, or good and bad fortune uh, in their lives. Uh, they were all influenced and uh, under the control uh, of these spiritual 
forces and powers. And uh, some of them could have been benevolent, uh, some of them neutral or uh, downright uh, wicked. Uh, and so uh, the answer uh, was to manipulate uh, these, these forces, uh, whether to, uh, to appease them or to gain their favor uh, one way or another uh, to manipulate them. Uh, and this could be done through uh, charms, uh, objects that they wore, like good, good luck objects and things like that, uh, through uh, invocations, calling upon powers and uh, deities uh, and spiritual forces, uh, incantations, magical formulas that they, uh, they would repeat uh, to, to have uh, influence. Uh, and then through things like curses and uh, astrology, uh, looking to uh, the heavens uh, to determine uh, one's fortune, to determine one's fate, to determine uh, when it would be a, a good time to uh, take a certain action uh, in life. Uh, and we can see uh, some of these things if we look uh, to the sons of Sceva, uh, itinerant Jewish exorcists uh, during Paul's three-year stay uh, in Ephesus. Uh, and so if you look at Acts 19, just contrast Paul's ministry uh, with uh, these Jewish sons of Sceva, a self-proclaimed uh, high priest uh, that some scholars say he, he probably wore this uh, lofty title because he, he wasn't a high priest uh, in uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem, but prob probably wore it just to, to have more, more prominence uh, within uh, Ephesus and the surrounding region. Uh, verse 8, uh, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, uh, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, uh, the seven sons of Sceva, uh, we see here, uh, tried to use the name of Jesus, the, the Lord uh, Jesus, uh, who has authority over all, that's what Luke calls him, uh, the Lord Jesus. They try to use uh, the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims, uh, in their uh, magical uh, formula, uh, in uh, their incantation. They're invoking him. You, you invoke this, this higher power, this uh, spirit or deity or angel or uh, however they uh, happen to perceive it. 
uh, and then the demon is supposed to come out. Uh, it's a formula. It's kind of mechanical. I, I remember uh, D.A. Carson uh, using a metaphor uh, for something completely different, uh, for a metaphor for the, uh, the, the very worst of a, a Cartesian uh, epistemology, uh, the very most naive uh, rationalistic uh, approach where, where reason is the highest authority over everything whatsoever, even over God and his prophets and apostles. Uh, and he basically said, uh, in it, you turn the crank and out pops truth. You turn the crank and out pops truth. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. It's supposed to be, be that simple, but it's, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, and you could say here, uh, they invoke the name Lord Jesus, they turn the crank, and out pops the demon. Or, or at least so, so it's, it's supposed to work that way. <laughs> but it, it didn't work that way, did it? Uh, and the key issue here is one of authority. A God, by his power, was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, uh, authenticating the gospel truth uh, that was, Paul was proclaiming and his authoritative spokesman. Uh, the apostle, uh, his envoy, uh, the apostle Paul. Uh, and so this was done by God's power. Uh, but uh, they're using uh, their, their magical formula. Uh, they're, they're using their invocations and treating Jesus as just a, another power. Uh, and the demon uh, recognizes or acknowledges uh, the authority of Jesus, uh, God's anointed king. Uh, he recognizes uh, Paul, uh, the envoy uh, sent by God, uh, but it does not acknowledge the itinerant Jewish exorcists uh, muttering out uh, their magical formulas. Uh, and now let's look uh, at the reaction of the people uh, to this event, uh, the, uh, the contrast between Paul uh, and the uh, Jewish exorcists who were left wounded and naked. Uh, verse 17 and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and uh, a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Uh, and now where, where it says uh, in the ESV, uh, it says also many of those who were now believers came. Uh, it could be literally translated. Uh, also many of those having believed were coming confessing and divulging uh, their practices. Uh, and so this is a relatively large subset. Many who had believed Paul's preaching uh, sometime in the past, uh, sometime uh, in the past uh, when, Paul, when uh, Luke uh, mentions this. Uh, and the significance of it uh, is that these were believers who were coming uh, and confessing uh, in divulging uh, their practices. Uh, some of them held on to uh, aspects of a worldview uh, that wasn't contrary uh, with the gospel, that wasn't contrary uh, with Paul's proclamation and biblical 
uh, apostolic uh, truth. Uh, and so they, they held on to some of their uh, superstitions and uh, religious formulas and responds to uh, the influences on their, uh, their da daily lives and daily struggles. Uh, and where it says 50,000 pieces of silver, uh, Frederick Donker uh, says uh, that this is the equivalent of a worker's wage for 137 years with no days off. So think, think of a worker uh, uh, working 137 years, no days off, taking everything he made and spending it all on these books and these trinkets and these magical formulas and scrolls. Uh, and that's what would be the equivalent to, or you can think of it as 137 men working each for a year with no days off, pooling everything they made together uh, and buying all of this. Uh, this is what Luke says uh, was destroyed uh, by the Christian believers who came to fear and see the folly uh, of uh, their, 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 old, their old ways and superstitions. Uh, and so this was a temptation for Christians uh, in Ephesus and surrounding regions, but uh, especially Ephesus. Uh, as Clinton Arnold basically says, you, you can consider uh, Ephesus the, the magical capital of the Roman Empire. And uh, he even said some of these magical practices were illegal uh, in the Roman Empire. I mean, uh, certain things were tolerated with their deities and such, but uh, some of these things weren't, uh, weren't even uh, legal. Uh, and if, if we look in Ephesians, I'll just read a couple spots. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, we see that uh, one of the things Paul wants them to know is uh, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, God's power toward us who believe according to all the working of his great might that he worked in Christ uh, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one uh, to come. He wants them to know that Christ is over all of these powers and authorities uh, in uh, the heavenly places. He is sovereign over all, uh, and they are seated uh, with him. Uh, and then uh, at the end of Ephesians in chapter 6, on uh, taking up the, the full armor of God, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Uh, and so uh, we'll see throughout this epistle that these things are relevant uh, to uh, Paul's audience. They're relevant to the Ephesians, uh, and he wants to un them to understand their place in Christ, uh, in his body, in his kingdom, uh, and that they are heirs of the promises uh, and blessings, and they need to trust in Christ uh, and in his power and in the gospel uh, and not uh, in their old pagan rituals. 
Uh, and now, just briefly, uh, since we've uh, addressed uh, the relevance of Ephesus to, to the New Testament, to the apostolic era, uh, we've touched on its general character, uh, its population, political economic significance in the Roman Empire, and we've looked at its religious character. I'd just like to read a purpose statement for this letter uh, from Clinton Arnold, uh, and then I'd like to make just a, a few comments, and we, we don't have much time, but uh, we'll touch on this briefly, and then we'll expand on it uh, in uh, the weeks and months to come, uh, Lord willing. Uh, and I'll read this statement a little slower the, the first time. Uh, it's, a, it's a long one. Uh, he says, uh, Paul wrote this letter to a large network of local churches in Ephesus and the surrounding cities to affirm them in their new identity in Christ. Now, this is the heart of what Paul wants to communicate, their identity uh, in Christ, their uh, union uh, with him uh, in the gospel. That's the very heart of it, uh, and that's the basis uh, for what follows. That's the basis for these three sub-purposes that Clinton Arnold is going to talk about. So, uh, to affirm them in their new identity in Christ as a means of strengthening them in their ongoing struggle with the powers of darkness, to promote a greater unity between Jews and Gentiles within and among the churches of the area, and to stimulate an ever-increasing transformation of their lifestyles into a greater conformity to the purity and holiness that God has called them to display. And let me read that again, and th then we'll break it down. Uh, Paul wrote this letter to a large network of local churches in Ephesus and the surrounding cities to affirm them in their new identity in Christ as a means of strengthening them in their ongoing struggle with the powers of darkness, to promote a greater unity between Jews and Gentiles within and among the churches of the area, and to stimulate an ever-increasing transformation of their lifestyles into a greater conformity to the purity and holiness that God has called them to display. Uh, and so the gospel is the very heart of this. Uh, in Christ is the very heart of Paul's uh, message, uh, that they are uh, one body, Jews and Gentiles. Uh, they are all citizens of the kingdom, and they're heirs of the blessings and promises. Uh, and this addresses uh, the, the sub-purposes uh, of, uh, and we could say it this way, uh, their hope and strength against the powers of darkness, uh, their unity in the body of Christ, and their holiness in a pagan Gentile culture. Uh, and so, uh, first, uh, the, their hope and strength against the powers of darkness, they faced opposition, and not just spiritual opposition. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's the heart of it. That's the, the big issue. Uh, but they were even concerned about Paul's uh, imprisonment. Uh, Paul faced opposition. Uh, they faced spiritual opposition. Uh, and Paul wants their confidence to be uh, in Christ and what God has accomplished for them uh, in Christ. Uh, and then, not just their hope and strength, but their unity in the body of Christ. And uh, you don't understand Paul's gospel uh, un 
he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, and so you don't understand his gospel unless you understand what God has done uh, to bring the good news uh, to both Jews and uh, Gentiles. Uh, and so this addresses not just the unity between Jews and Gentiles, although they can't understand the gospel without that, uh, but Paul also wants unity uh, within their body between all believers, uh, all believers from, from all peoples. Uh, and we'll see that uh, very clearly uh, in his, his letter. Uh, and so addresses uh, their need for hope and strength, uh, their need for unity uh, in the body of Christ, and their holiness in a pagan Gentile uh, culture. Uh, and they lived uh, in uh, a culture that was uh, very immoral, and uh, they needed to understand that they had been brought out of darkness uh, into the light. Uh, and so in uh, chapter 4, uh, Paul turns, uh, as Harold Honer uh, states it, uh, from their calling to uh, the call to walk uh, in conformity uh, to this calling, to, to walk uh, worthily uh, of this calling to which God has called them uh, once they know the, the power uh, that's in, in the gospel. Uh, and so we'll, we'll be looking at, at all of these uh, themes and uh, purposes that Paul is addressing. And I think this is exciting to see that uh, as we look at Ephesus and the destination, uh, we look that, yes, uh, in Ephesus uh, is uh, original. Those, those words belong to this epistle, and uh, it fits very strongly uh, within uh, the, the very uh, character of the, the city, city of Ephesus. And so uh, in uh, the coming weeks and months, uh, if, if God wills, uh, then we'll be able to get into and d dig into uh, Paul's, uh, Paul's epistle, which I, I think is uh, just one of the, the deepest uh, as far as the, the truth of the gospel goes. And so let's uh, close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for our time together. And I pray that you'd also bless us uh, as we sing your praises and give thanks to you. And uh, as we hear the, the proclamation and preaching of your word and Pray that you'd uh, build us up, uh, that you'd uh, instruct us as a body, that you'd uh, bring us unity and hope and confidence in you, uh, and that you'd also conform us to the likeness of your Son, that uh, we'd, you'd enable us to live uh, increasingly holy lives, uh, faithful to you, and that uh, one day, ultimately, uh, you would glorify us. Uh, and then we would uh, be just like your son and uh, never sin again. And we look forward to that day and we praise you and thank you uh, in the name of your son. Amen.